Good morning to y'all. You should be happy to see me. For those of you who know what in the world was that, I was in an extremely uh, bad traffic accident this last Tuesday morning. Uh, my car flipped in a circle around 360 and landed, and I was fine. My car was not, but I'll let it go and keep my life. So God is faithful. We were singing that one song, Everlasting, or God is in control, whatever, and I was going, yeah, that, that's it. That, that happened. Ah. Well, for the last uh, few months, we have been in a series and, and will continue to be for a while. Who is God and what is He like? With the hope that we, as a church family, can grow in knowing God, in knowing Him, the one and only true God, and as a result, have an experience, life with Him, eternal life now. As the foundation for our consideration, we have spent three months looking at various passages and themes throughout the New Testament related to who Jesus is. And the New Testament as a whole describes and presents Jesus as the supreme revelation of God, describing Him as the exact representation of God, because He was and is God. And as a result, the New Testament writers make a distinction between what was presented before Christ as a shadow of what was to come. The Apostle Paul describes this in Colossians 2 where he instructed believers, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or even a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Everything pointed to Him. The statement that um, Cindy described about him explaining to the two men on the Emmaus Road about how all the scriptures of the Old Testament point to him. Significant thoughtfulness about who he was, who he is, and who he shows God to be to us. Similarly, the author of Hebrews says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. Both writers are saying that compared to the revelation of who and what God is like in Jesus, the portrayals of God in the Old Testament are a shadow. They're not the real thing. But they point to the real thing. Jesus said in John 14, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And as I have said and will continue to say, if we want to know what God is like, we have only to look at the person and the work of Jesus. We have only to look at the incarnation, the atonement, and on the cross to see and experience the supreme, indeed the unsurpassable revelation of God's loving nature. In all of eternity, no event reveals God's true self-sacrificial character of love more perfectly than Jesus' life and death on the cross. 
Last week in our continuing journey of knowing and experiencing this God of self-sacrificial love, I led us to consider the church's understanding of why Jesus had to die. And I began by commenting that if asked why Jesus had to die, most Christians today would pretty quickly reply to pay for our sins, which he did indeed do. But for the first thousand years of church history, the main reason given by the church and its followers for the reason that Jesus died on the cross was to defeat Satan and to set us free from Satan's oppressive rule. Everything else that Jesus accomplished, including paying for our sins, was to be understood as an aspect and consequence of that victory. This morning, I want to just hopefully very briefly review those numerous theories of the atonement developed in the first few centuries after Christ's death. And then I want to look at a couple of more that are probably the more familiar to us, developed around 1100 AD and following. But before we do that, let's pray. Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, the one who comes alongside to help. Thank you that you are here. Thank you for your love for us, your love for the Father and the Son, and the Father's love for the Son and the Spirit, and the Son's love for the Father and the Spirit. Thank you for your invitation for us to know you, to know the fullness and completeness of who you are as love. And would you help us to see in Jesus who you really are? Would you help me today as, we, as I present and share these thoughts? And would you help us to have our eyes upon you to hear your heart to see you who, for who you really are. In Jesus' name. These initial <clears throat> theories are, are simply ways that the early church was trying to understand this <clears throat> amazing thing of Christ dying on the cross and being raised again. It was nothing like anyone really understood from the persona of the Old Testament and the prophetic that was present related to the Messiah. Messiah was to be a conquering king who would kick out all their adversaries, their enemies, and establish Israel again as a ruling force in the world under God's leading and direction. But instead, Jesus hung on a cross as a common thief, despised, mocked, spat upon. And so, like they, we, we wrestle to fully understand what happened, what, what was that all about. And throughout church history, many have reflected and considered and 
talked and shared. The first was the moral influence theory, which simply says that Jesus came and died in order to bring about a positive change to humanity. And that this moral change comes through the teaching of Jesus alongside his exemplary life and death. His life and death were to be understood as a catalyst to reform society, inspiring men and women to follow his example. And an illustration was when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. And he was a great moral influence. Sadly, some have held him only to be that. The ransom theory states that by sinning, humankind sold themselves into captivity to the devil, and God offered Christ's death as a ransom payment to free us. But through Christ's resurrection, Christ was freed from the devil's clutches. Example of this is described in Hebrews where it says Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. A third is the Christus Victor theory, which means Christ victorious. And it was the dominant theory of the atonement up until around 11th century. And says essentially, Jesus came and died in order to defeat the powers of evil, sin, death, and the devil, in order to free mankind from their bondage. And this theory is related to the ransom theory with the difference being that there is no payment or satisfying the devil or anyone. Rather, Jesus defeated evil through the cross, through his death, thereby setting the human race free. This Christus Victor is strongly emphasized throughout the New Testament. I give you two as reference. Jesus came to overpower the strong man who holds the world in bondage and to plunder his belongings. Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them triumphing over them through the cross. According to this theory, as a result of sin and human rebellion, humankind gave up freedom that they had had in God and experienced enslavement to the devil, which required God's performing a rescue mission that included vanquishing the powers of darkness. And then the recapitulation theory, which links the atonement more than any others with Jesus' entire life, the entirety of the incarnation, why he came and needed to be human. And it states that the atonement of Jesus reverses humanity's course from disobedience to obedience. It says that Jesus' life recapitulated or repeats or redoes All the stages of human life, but without sin. And in doing so, he reverses the course of disobedience initiated by Adam. Jesus is seen as the new Adam who succeeds where the first Adam failed. Undoing the wrong that the first Adam did and leading humankind on to eternal life 
including morality and life with God. A key passage is Romans is in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man Jesus abounded for the many. God effected the salvation of humanity in Jesus who represented humanity and became what we are in order that we might become what He is. And all these theories of the atonement understood and upheld for the first thousand years after Christ's death describe God as a God of love who so genuinely cared about our situation that He made an ultimate sacrifice, becoming human, dying on the cross so that we might be delivered from bondage and death and have life with Him. As the Apostle John so clearly described in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved. The next two theories of the atonement are going to sound most familiar as they have been the dominant views of the atonement since the Reformation. The first is called the satisfaction theory and it was postulated by Anselm of Canterbury in the 12th century, 1100s. And he proposed what came to be known as the satisfaction theory for the atonement. And in this theory, Jesus' death is understood as a death to satisfy the justice of God. Satisfaction here means restitution, the mending of what was broken, the paying back of a debt. And in this theory, Anselm emphasizes the justice of God and claims that sin is an injustice that must be balanced. Anselm's satisfaction theory says that Jesus Christ died in order to pay back the injustice of human sin and to satisfy the justice of God. In the ransom theory described earlier, God is said to pay off the devil with Christ's death. That was unacceptable to Anselm and others. And in contrast, Anselm taught that it is humanity who owes a debt to God, not God, to Satan. And our debt in this theory is that of injustice. Our injustices have stolen from the justice of God and therefore must be paid back, which is accomplished by Jesus paying God back by His death on the cross. A primary verse supporting this theory is Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt 
consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, Anselm lived in the feudal period of our history. The issues of justice were significantly present within the society of the time and has continued to be since then. So this idea or theme of justice for Anselm came out of rationalism and not so much the scriptures. Anselm was a philosopher and uh, proposed what is known in philosophy as the... um, I didn't put it in my notes because I wasn't going to say it. Somebody help me. What, what was the, the theory about the existence of God? The ontological, there's my dear friend, the ontological argument about the existence of God. Anyway, we all know what it is, I'm sure, and so therefore it's very important. Anyway, Anselm was a philosopher and a theologian, but he primarily worked within the realm of philosophy. But brought wonderful things to the Christian faith. The penal substitutionary theory came as a result in the 16th century, 400 years later after Anselm, and it was developed during the Reformation and is described as being taught by Martin Luther and John Calvin. The penal substitutionary theory modified Anselm's satisfactory theory by adding a more legal aspect. In this theory, Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. Jesus is punished in the place of sinners in order to satisfy the justice of God and the legal demand of God to punish sin. As a result of Jesus' death, God can now forgive the sinner because Jesus was punished in the place of the sinner. Sounds real familiar, right? The penalty that each sinner owes to God is paid by Jesus, experiencing the wrath of God for them on the cross, thus appeasing God's wrath on their behalf. And perhaps one of the most specific passages used to support this theory is Isaiah 53, and it is a theory. A prophetic portrait of the humiliation and suffering Jesus would experience on our behalf. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Now, I find it interesting that that last statement follows an earlier statement. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and Jesus took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. There's a tension there. Did Jesus take it up or was it placed upon him? And is there a possibility that the language here is difficult to understand? And notice that it was we who considered him stricken by God. We considered him smitten and afflicted. When Christ hung on that cross... He was despised. He was rejected by humankind. And was seen as a man on the cross as one who was rejected by God according to Jewish understandings. Did Jesus pay for our sins? Was he stricken? Absolutely. But was it God that smit him, smited him? Afflicted. I want to remind us as I proceed that we're talking about theories of the atonement. There's little question of the effect and outcome of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, providing salvation for our sins, freedom from the bondage to the devil, and the curse of the consequence of death. That came as a result of our human rebellion against God, choosing life on our own without Him. But the mystery of what happened on the cross, particularly between the Father, Son, and Spirit, I suggest, as does a dear friend of mine named uh, Dallas Willard, that we're not going to fully understand that till at some point we, when we stand in front of him and he explains it to us. There is a mystery in the transaction that happened that is difficult to grasp. And also, as we have described, all Scripture is about and points to Jesus and there are a lot of biblical passages describing and referencing Jesus' work of atonement. There is a lot there to, to pull together into a consistent theory of the atonement. And while every theologian and every Christian has the Holy Spirit of truth with and within them, we also have with and within us theologies, doctrines, biblical understandings, and the images of God that predispose us towards what we know to be the truth. And while we wish it were true that everything we know and believe about the Bible and about Jesus and about God is true, the reality is that we all are on a journey of knowing God and what He is like. As were all of the followers of Christ. With that, 
I want to share with you some of my thoughts and theories about why I believe the satisfaction and penal substitutionary theories both miss the mark of describing what happened on the cross. And worse, have provided an image of an angry and wrath-filled God that hinders many from knowing and experiencing God's true self-sacrificial character of love expressed on the cross. I'm just going to touch on two issues with these two theories. One of the issues is the question, did God actually forgive us? One of the most significant and consistent themes in the Bible, old and new, is forgiveness. Following the sin of Israel in the wilderness, worshiping the golden calf, can't get a whole lot worse than that. God describes to Moses God's own character saying, The Lord, the Lord, the merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's God's description of Himself. I kind of like it. feels a whole lot better than what others have described. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In a passage where Jesus is speaking about having faith in prayer, He ends it with, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. In another passage, Peter asks this question, Jesus, how many times must I forgive? Seven times? I don't think, mine's way over there. We got it. All right, God. What do you want to say? Oh, you liked that first one about from Exodus. Okay, me too. How many times? Seven? I mean, that would be amazing. No, not seven. Seventy times seven. In other words, just keep on forgiving. So why are we encouraged or led to forgive, but God had to have retribution. Just a thought. Just an idea. Oh, I'm not the only one, but... If God the Father needs someone to pay the price for sin, does the Father ever really forgive anyone? If you owe me $100... And I hold you to it unless you or someone pays me the money you owe. Did I forgive you the debt? No. 
Forgiveness is about releasing someone from a debt, not collecting it from them or someone else. I want to look back at the Colossians passage that was used for the satisfaction theory, and I want to point out some things that I think could help us. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way. He nailed it to the cross. Now, the recapitulation theory that describes Jesus as taking on, living out this life, this perfect life, is described here when it says, when you were dead, He made you alive together with Him. In Christ, we died. In Christ, we raised up from the dead, and in Christ, we now rule and reign. So Paul describes in Ephesians. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Forgiveness is based on mercy. We don't get what we deserve. And this idea here of canceling out the certificate of debt That does not sound to me like God was exacting payment, as these two theories suggest. It sounds like forgiveness. It sounds like forgiving a debt. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What were Jesus' last words on the cross? It is teleos. It's all done. All complete. What was complete? Payment to God? The experience of the wrath of God? Did Jesus suffer? Oh my goodness. I'm not proposing anything less than what we know and believe about the suffering of Christ, the weight upon Him. The question is simply, did he experience the pouring out of the wrath of God, or was something else going on? And then, I would like to suggest that I have a problem with the issue of it. Was God so angry that he sent his only son? The penal substitutionary theory in particular says Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. Sounds like he's angry to me. Jesus is punished in the place of sinners in order to satisfy the justice of God and the legal demand of God to punish sin. What that sounds like to me is that God was so angry that he sent his only son to pour out on him the full measure of his wrath so that we would not go to hell, but get to go to heaven. Legal ticket to heaven. Transaction. 
But that's not what Jesus said. For God so loved that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Those who believe in Him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus is describing, this one's in red letters if you open up your Bibles. This, Jesus said this one, by the way. Uh, Jesus is describing two kinds of life. He's describing the perishing life, a life without God, a life lived according to the flesh, and he's describing an alternative life, not an alternative reality, but maybe it is, an eternal life, the life with God according to the Spirit. The Apostle Paul says the same thing, but with different words. Romans 6.23, the wages, the consequences, the outcome of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Is that not the same thing? The outcome of choosing life without God is perishing. You will die. We will find ourselves in yuckier and yuckier and yuckier and yuckier life, if you want to call it life. For God so loved that he would, didn't want us to experience that. And he provided a means and a method. The cost or outcome of life having the world the way we want it is perishing. And the end result of perishing is death. And Jesus came to set us free from that. The free gift, the gift without cost is that in Christ through his death and in him and through his resurrection and in his resurrection we have died and have now risen in his life it's a free gift Romans 3 21 through 26 Apart from law, the righteousness of God has now been disclosed. Apart from the law, the law described a process of do this and you'll live, don't do this and you'll perish. Apart from that, the righteousness of God has now been disclosed and is attested to by the law and the prophets. In other words, this thing that happened in Christ was described in the Old Testament. And what was described was the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
they are now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith. He did this to show His righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that He Himself is righteous and He justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. God put forward a sacrifice of atonement. I want to encourage you to take some time this week or in the next weeks and, and read through the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. Read through the passages that describe Jesus talking to his disciples about his death, both in advance and following. And I want you to... to Perhaps just for a moment, try and, and set aside this idea of, of the wrath of God and see if you don't instead see this God of love. Now, Claire reminded me of this. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, these, these are, you know, silly little psychological kinds of things related to how we see things. And, and in each of these, there are, are two, there are pictures of two women. Um, how many see the ugly old hag? How many of you see the more lovely young woman? How many see both? You know, life's kind of like that sometimes. I'll help, I'll help those of you. Although I can't see the old lady in this one for a minute. Ah, this is her nose, right? And this is her eye. That's her mouth. This is her long streaming hair. She's, this is a, a wig, kind of a cap thing, right? That's the old lady. It's, it's similar over there. This is her nose. That's her mouth. That's a cap. This is her chin, a really long chin, long nose, mouth, that's her eye. Her, But, or, this is the ear of the young woman. That's her ear, and that's her chin, and that's a neck thingy. Anyway, all right, too much time. It, let's go to the next black slide. <laughs> So we can move on. Um, I'm, oh, let me say it the way I say it here. The best I can tell, but it's only a theory, is that the language of the New Testament does not support the penal substitutionary theory that Jesus paid a debt owed to God by humankind and suffered the wrath of God's vengeance. And I'm not the only one who thinks that. 
So I want to propose, if Jesus' death didn't do that, what did it do? And what difference does it make? And we'll talk about that next week. So come on back, y'all. So my encouragement, uh, we've brought this up on Bill, brought it up, and others. There's a passage in Acts that speaks of a group of people at a, a city called Berea who studied the things to see that they were true. We're dealing with how do we understand, how do we interpret the scriptures and bringing together. I, it was interesting, I, I, one last comment. In uh, college, I had a, a minors in biblical studies um, and had a doctrine class. And I loved what my Lutheran professor said uh, when, when we were talking about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And he said, the reality is, is those who would believe um, one of those has to kind of sweep under the carpet a number of verses. And those that uphold the other tend to highlight and emphasize certain ones and kind of leave behind other ones. And I think it's interesting that this theory of the penal substitutionary theory was purported by John Calvin, who taught double predestination, who taught that God predestined some to go to hell, which we, most in this room, would not uphold. But it was strongly taught, and it provides the basis for the substitutionary penals. Anyway, so my encouragement would be to connect with God. Invite Him to, as He did with Moses, to tell you who He is. And if you don't hear anything, then just look at Jesus. But my hope is a thousand years before those other theories came into place. The church understood the death of Christ without the wrath of God. And we'll talk more about that next week. Papa, this is hard. We have probably 99% of us believe this all our lives and have just accepted this theory as the truth of what happened on the cross. Surely something amazing happened and we thank you for that. We, all are, we are eternally grateful for your forgiveness. For we were deserving of death. Would you continue to help us grow in our journey of knowing you? The real you. The God that Jesus described and demonstrated. We welcome your love. Pray that you will 
more and more. Help us to embrace and experience your acceptance, your love, your mercy, your grace, the very life that we have in Jesus. Fill us, Holy Spirit, with the fullness of your love that we could set aside false images that have confused and misled for your glory and your namesake. Let it be so. Thanks for coming and hanging out. Look forward to seeing you again next week. If you would like prayer or someone to talk to, you want to talk to me about these issues at all, I'd be happy to be able to do that uh, here. There'll be others that will be here ready to, to pray with you. So please take advantage of this opportunity for us to be a part of one another's lives, to be the body of Christ. God bless. Have a great week.